Good morning. Happy fall. We have now officially entered into fall. Do you know what tomorrow is? Yes, the Day of Atonement. Who said that, Carol? Aha, Christy. <laughs> She's not Jewish. Tomorrow's Yom Kippur. You know, the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood on the, whole, the altar in there? Anyway, that's tomorrow, Yom Kippur. It's also the day when our president meets with the Pope, which is interesting because it's the 200, he's the 266th Pope, and tomorrow's the 266th day of the year, and so some are speculating that something is going to be birthed because also gestation for a human being is 266 days. That's just, you know how I am with numbers. That's just... <laughs> Anyway, we'll see. We are going to be doing another introductory lesson, and everybody went, oh. But we have to set the stage, so just bear with me today and again tomorrow. Now, tomorrow, I mean, not tomorrow, next week. I think next week will be fun because I'm going to set the stage for us historically taking us up to where we are in time with Daniel. But I want to really start with Adam and Eve. So we're going to have like a jet tour through the Old Testament all the way to to Daniel, from Genesis to Daniel next week. Lord willing, I could squeeze it all in one lesson. But um, today we're going to be looking at introduction part two to the book of Daniel, and I've entitled this an attacked book. Did you know that Daniel is the most attacked book of the Bible, even more so than Genesis? Did you know that? Some of you do. It is. And I found this out very early in my Christian life. As a brand new Christian, I went into a mainline denominational church that was being uh, headed up by an interim minister at that time who happened to be the head of the Department of Religion at Duke University, Duke Divinity School, a man with a lot of credentials behind his name. And he began to attack the book of Daniel. That was my first experience in a church as a born-again Christian. You know, this big wig with his black robe and his eloquence. And he's attacking one week the book of Revelation and the next week the book of Revela uh, Daniel. So I found out very early that Daniel is indeed an attacked book. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Whatever, did you know that whatever is meaningful to the heart and soul of God, Satan will attack? <laughs> you found that out already. That means uh, he will attack the truthfulness of the Bible because the Bible is very precious to God. It's his word, and he has exalted his word even above his name. So Satan, even from the very beginning, attacked the word of God, didn't he? Yea, hath God said. And he will, of course, also attack the deity of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no other book of Scripture contains as many already fulfilled prophecies as the book of Daniel, and because it clearly gives evidence of Christ's deity, Satan has launched an absolutely huge attack on this book in the past 100, 150 years. Tremendous attack. You can go and find many books. Actually, this man, who is probably now gone from the scene because that was some 40 years ago, um, wrote a book. And, and in the book... It was a, just a small paperback, but here I am, a brand new Christian, and he gives me this book because I was arguing with him. Can you believe it? A little, 
little me, nobody. <laughs> and I was arguing with him, but it's God-inspired. You know, how can you say that? And, and so he gave me his paperback book that he had written, and all it was was criticizing this and that all about Daniel. So, um, and he's just one of many. You can go anywhere and buy books that criticize Daniel. Don't do it, but they're, they're abundant. <laughs> um, so this is, and this has developed in the last 100, 150 years. However, the ancient world in which Daniel was written did not question it. The ancient world did not question the book of Daniel, nor the 6th century B.C. date for the birth of the book. It was written, you know, toward the end of the uh, 5th century, 600 years or 500 years before Christ. Even the very title of the book, which is what? What's the title of the book? Daniel, even the title reflects belief of both Jews and Christians that it was written by Daniel, as the author himself claims. Look at least eight times. I'm going to answer your first homework question. This is going to be really easy, but look with me, please. Let's see. Let's start at Daniel 7. Turn to Daniel 7 and look at verse 15. Who is claiming to be the author of this book? Daniel 7:15. Try to keep up with me because I'll go fast. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body. Who says he wrote the book? Daniel. I, Daniel. Turn over to chapter 8, verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel. Look at 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood. On and on it goes. Then look at chapter 10, verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. Daniel 10, verse 11. Oh, no, that's uh, Gabriel speaking. Oh, Daniel. Well, Gabriel, you know, claims that it was Daniel, too. He says, oh, Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Um, let's see, I think there's another place in here. Okay, all the way in chapter 12, the last chapter. Look at verse 5. It says, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, blah, 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 blah. On it goes. So who claims to be the author of the book? Daniel. You just answered that first question. See how easy the homework questions are? <laughs> The Jewish Talmud. What is the Talmud? Well, it's rabbinic commentary over the years on the Old Testament. The Jewish Talmud claims that Daniel is the author and likewise supports the 6th century date of the birth of the book, the writing of the book. And then there's the famous Jewish historian um, Flavius Josephus who said the following about the many prophecies of Daniel. He said, quote, all these things as God revealed them to him, Daniel left behind in his writings so that those who read them and observe how they have come to pass must wonder at Daniel having been so honored by God. The attack against the reliability of the book of Daniel really did not begin until 300 years after Christ, the 3rd century A.D., which was almost 1,000 years, about 900 years after the book was written. Then the attack began. And I don't think it really should surprise any of us that the attack originated from a man who was anti-God, anti-Christian, he was a philosopher named Malchus Porphyry, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y. Philosophy students still study this man's writings. You can Google him and read about him. Porphyry. He was a Phoenician, born in Tyre of Phoenicia. He did not believe in the supernatural. Okay? Didn't believe in the, anything supernatural, which would include predictive prophecy and miracles 
and angels. And I guess if you don't believe in the supernatural, that means you're an atheist, right? Don't believe in God either. In a series of 15 books under the title of Against the Christians, he attacked God. He, he argued against the reality of a God. And he attacked particularly the Christian faith. And in his 12th book of that series, he launched his attack big time against the book of Daniel. Now, he asserted that the book of Daniel is a forgery. He claimed that it was not written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C. at all, but that it was written by someone claiming to be Daniel, who wrote in the 2nd century during the time of the intertestamental Maccabean revolt. Now, intertestamental, what do I mean by that? Right, the 400 years of silence from heaven when God didn't speak to Israel through a prophet, 400 years of silence. The uh, first one he spoke to after that silence was the father of John the Baptist. But that's between the books of Malachi and Matthew, intertestamental. In that period of time, there was a revolt of the Jews against a Syrian king, an evil man, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you have never heard of him before, I promise you, you will be a lot in the book of Daniel. There's a lot said in the book of Daniel about this man because he serves as a picture in type of the coming Antichrist. Antiochus, his policy, and he was a Syrian king during the Greek Empire, his policy toward the Jews, and the Greeks had domain over the land of Israel at that time, but the Jews were very stubborn, always have been, <laughs> stubborn people. Remember what God said, the stiff-necked people? Well, in this case, it was a good thing because they were stubborn. They did not want to be Hellenized. His policy was to assimilate the Jews into the prevailing Greek culture of that empire. You know, um, um, just... Hellenization comes from the Greek word for Greece. The Greek people, I've told you this before, but the Greek people do not call Greece, Greece. <laughs> they call it Elas. So, so in, in English, they put an H in front of it, even though there isn't an H. But So it looks like Helen, to Hellenize is to Greekitize. He wanted to, to get them to accept all the Greek gods and goddesses and the Greek culture. And to their credit, these Jewish people, many of them, absolutely refused to embrace the Greek gods, the polytheistic mythological system of my ancestors, you know, who worshipped Zeus and all that gang. And that was a good thing, wasn't it? No, they weren't going to give up their faith in the one true God. So Antiochus attempted to force them. And he went in and desecrated the temple. He desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies, which, you know, to the, to the Jewish people, they don't eat bacon, do they? Or pork chops. Um, because a pig, a swine, is an unclean animal, and that was desecrated. And, and he took the, the blood of the pig, and he just, you know, uh, slimed it all over everything in the temple, desecrated it big time. He forced pig meat down the priests' throats, and he killed many of the Jewish priests. And then he issued um, orders that the Jews were to cease their sacrifices. And he erected an image of Zeus right there in the most holy place. What does all this sound like? What's going to happen in the future? 
The Antichrist is going to do a lot of the same thing, except he's going to set up an image of himself in the most holy place. So you see why Antiochus is a picture, a type of the coming Antichrist. He also had Jews put to death for such things as studying the law, the Torah, or circumcising their little baby boys, or um, observing the Sabbath. And yet, no matter what he did, his measures failed. And his very cruel tactics led to a bloody revolt of the Jews under the leadership of the Maccabean family, particularly um, a man named Judas Maccabee. And that's why it's called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, this revolt of these faithful Jews against Antiochus um, was a three-year-long guerrilla-style warfare. Because these were just simple farmers, these Jewish men. Simple farmers. Um, and all they used, all their weapons of warfare were like rocks and uh, uh, bows and arrows and spears. And yet, after three years, they were successful in gaining back Jerusalem and the temple and gaining their liberty from Syrian control. And this is uh, why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah was because once they got back their temple, they went into the temple, which is dark inside because there's no windows, and they had one little cruise of oil that had been properly prepared and blessed and however they prepare there. Only one little cruise, and yet it lasted how many days, Carol? Eight days, and that was a miracle in itself, and it gave them enough light to go in there and clean out the holy temple, and that is where... The, the holiday of Hanukkah comes from. That's a, this is all a true story. It actually happened in history. Well, Porphyry, this heretic philosopher Porphyry, made claim that it was while this second century Jewish revolt, the Maccabean revolt, while it was raging, that a patriotic Jew decided that he would write the book of Daniel. And he would write it in order to give his fellow countrymen some imaginary, you get that word? Some imaginary examples of successful opposition to the unrighteous demands of Gentile kings such as Antiochus Epiphanes. So he wrote the book of Daniel in the second century before Christ in order to encourage the others revolting with him against Antiochus, you know, showing how they could oppose the king and his unrighteous commands, do it even if they throw you into a lion's den. And he just came up with that example. Didn't really, you know, wasn't true. And do it, you know, stand firm for the Lord even if they throw you into, what's the other thing? A fiery furnace and turn it up seven times. So Porphyry's theory... His theory is that Daniel was written by this pretend Daniel, and none of the events of the book are real. They're all imagined. They're made up, and none of the characters of the book, other than the obvious ones that we know are really historical, like King Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus, and you know, but the other ones, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they're all imaginary characters. So you get it? Are you following me so far? Well, for Porphyry, you see, to have admitted, and he's anti-God, anti-Christian, for him to have admitted that Daniel was written when the Jewish people were captives in Babylon would be for him to have to admit that prophecy is possible. 
and that God, if there was a God, which he didn't want to admit, that God could, through chosen agents, such as Daniel, reveal his plans and his events of the future, and that he could do so by whatever means he so chose, such as dreams or visions or handwriting on the wall, or angelic messenger, messenger, messengers, um, divine inspiration, miracles. It would also have been for Porphyry to have to admit that the 70 weeks prophecy led straight to Jesus of Nazareth being the one and only true Messiah, because that prophecy does lead right to him. So he would have to admit all these things, which he did not want to do. So he wrote his series of books, you know, against the Christians. The third century church now, what did the church do when Porphyry wrote this series of books? Well, the church, praise God, rose up against him. And they, they dismissed him as a total heretic. They told the Christians of that day, don't pay any attention. And they gave reason for why not to pay attention to him. They used apologetics. They defended the scripture. Uh, they, totally, they totally discredited the Maccabean date theory of Porphyry. And um, one particular Jewish scholar named Jerome, who is a, was a staunch defender of the word of God, he, he really did a wonderful job. He wrote a commentary on Daniel, which is used to this day. And 30 of what we could call church fathers got together. 30 scholars, Christian scholars, Jewish scholars got together. Some of them were Eusebius and Methodius. And they, again, you know, they totally wrote long papers and theses and books on why Porphyry was wrong. And that was the end of that for 1,600 years. Wasn't that great that they did that? Don't you wish we had councils of men coming together and doing that today with all the wrong teaching that's going on? Um, <clears throat> and by the way, this won't surprise you either, but Porphyry was a man, if you study his life, he was a man who suffered from a great deal of mental problems. <laughs> Why is that? That's always the case. He suffered from depression. He was suicidal. He had to go away for years because of his mental... You know, it seems like whenever somebody attacks the scripture, who's, who's really at the bottom of all that? Who's behind all that? Satan and these kind of people. Did you know that Charles Darwin suffered with great depression and all kinds of mental problems? Anyway, that's interesting. So, 1,600 years, and Porphyry was laid to rest, and nobody talked about him, and everything was fine, and hunky-dory. But with the rise of modern rationalism in the 19th century A.D., and such men as Descartes in his book, were you forced to read his book when you were in college or high school? The Age of Reason. Had to read that dumb book. But anyway, Bible critics began to rehash... They took Porphyry's writings out of the vaults and they began to rehash his assertions regarding the book of Daniel. Because of the prophetic nature of Daniel and the assumption by many proponents of higher critical theories, I don't know why they always call them higher critics. To me, they're lower critics. <laughs> but these proponents of higher criticism, um, that the supernatural is impossible which eliminates, of course, prophecy and miracles. If the supernatural is impossible, you can't have prophecy, you know, telling the 
future ahead of time. You can't have miracles. So with this, the attacks against Daniel began in full force back in the 19th century. These supposed higher critics took Daniel and they threw him back into the lion's den, hoping that this time he would be devoured forever. At the foundation of their attack was all the anti-Christian, anti-prophetic, anti-God prejudice, bias of Porphyry's assumptions, which were all without any evidence, by the way. He just came up with these theories about this second century guy writing it, you know. That's just an assumption. He had no proof or anything. But uh, they, all, they all got on the bandwagon again that Daniel is a fictitious book written by a man who pretended to be Daniel, but who actually wrote 400 years later than the book itself claims it was written. Are you following me? All right. Now, you might think, this is ridiculous. Why do we need to know this? Well, God says that we are supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope is that, that is in us. I encountered this right away in my Christian life. It's out there. It's prevalent. It's in many, many, many churches. It may even be in your church and you just don't know it. But if it is, you need to know how to speak up and defend the scripture. There are a lot of pulpits that don't believe in the divine inspiration of God, of the scripture. That's the way it is. That is more the norm today than it is not. So that's why we're doing this. The late Dr. W.A. Criswell, a lot of you probably have heard of him. He said this, and this is fascinating. This is true. He said, there is not a liberal theologian in the world, past or present, who accepts the authenticity of the book of Daniel. Religion departments all over this country, in colleges and um, even in seminaries, do not accept the authenticity of the book of, Re of Daniel. And many throw out completely the book of Revelation, saying that it shouldn't have been even canonized into our um, Bibles that it's all about things in the past, has nothing absolutely that pertains to you and I today, and that it's irrelevant, we don't need to study it. That goes on, okay? And yet, isn't it ironic that the only book in the Bible that promises you a blessing if you study it and read it is the book of Revelation? Of course, Satan doesn't want us studying it and reading it and understanding it, which Daniel helps us to do. Well, he said, so there's not a liberal theologian in the world who accepts the authenticity of the book of Daniel? They all deny its integrity, declaring the book to be a blatant patent forgery. They define its contents as pure, unadulterated fiction. End of quote. Let me give you an example of one such liberal critic of biblical prophecy, a man by the name of W.S. Towner. He says, quote, We need to assume that the vision as a whole is a prophecy after the fact. You know, the man just wrote, whoever this forger was, he looked back on history and wrote history but pretended it was prophetic, okay? He says, why? Because human beings are unable accurately to predict future events centuries in advance. Is he missing something here? What's he missing? What is he totally ignoring? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Of course humans aren't able to tell the future on our own. But when he inspires a man, a prophet, one of his prophets, to write something, it's God telling the end from the beginning, not the man. It's just, I mean, they just do away with divine inspiration. 
So what we have, he says, in the book of Daniel is, is in fact not a roadmap of the future laid down in the 6th century BC, but an interpretation of the events of the author's own time. End of quote. His presupposition is totally unacceptable to me. Hope it is to you, too, because he makes absolutely no allowance for God's power to speak predictively through his chosen human instruments. What is ironic is that critics like Mr. Towner uh, display themselves a very deep-seated bias against the very thing that is the main subject of the book of Daniel, which is God's sovereignty, that he is in control of all history. Why do liberals, why do they deny predictive prophecy? Why do they get upset that God could close the mouths of lions? Why do they say that the pre-incarnate son of God cannot preserve people in a fiery furnace? Why do they refuse to allow the miracles and the prophecies of Daniel to stand? And, and therefore, why do they try to so strongly convince their students, if they're in a university or a seminary, or if they're in a pulpit, their congregation, they would try to convince you and I as well that um, the miracles are lies or great exaggerations, and the events are fictitious, and the author is a forger. Why do they declare, as I said earlier, that the entire book of Revelation has been fulfilled and it is not necessary for you and I to study today? Why? Well, I think part of the problem is definitely their pride. They, they think of themselves as very intellectual and elite and way above the common people like you and I who just believe, you know, in faith that it's all God-inspired. But I think they're also trying to compromise with the elite of this world, aren't they? And they don't want to look like knuckleheads that believe in miracles like Jonah, you know, and the whale. And, and so they're compromising just like they've done over the years with evolution so that they can say they still believe in this book, but not all of it. You know, we'll pick and choose what we believe. Basically, the reason is that they have put their faith in their own minds. Would you turn to Isaiah 55 for a minute? Here's the answer we give people like this. When you put your faith in your own mind, that is what is called modern rationalism. And at the bottom of this humanistic philosophy, which is all it is, it's a humanistic philosophy where man puts self on the throne of his heart instead of God, is the idea that man's mind is ultimate. And if man cannot conceive of something in his rationalistic thinking, if he can't understand it by his rational mind, then the assumption is that it simply cannot be true. All right, well, let's look at what God has to say about that through Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. I mean, unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for, and here's what he says to all these university professors and department of religion heads who are turning our young people away from the truth of scripture. 
He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Amen. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's your answer right there. You know, they think they put their ways and their thoughts above God's thoughts. And he says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? The way of destruction. You see, the higher critics of scripture cannot tolerate miracles or predictions of the future because they violate reason. And anything that violates their reasoning, they adamantly declare, cannot be true. Rationalism will not tolerate two things, miracles and prophecy. Why? Because if such things do really exist, if, you know, men have been able in the Bible, and there is no other holy book, I use that term loosely, of any other religion that dared to predict the future, only the Bible does, but if there, if there is such a thing of men telling the future, and um, if there is such a thing as all these miracles, then it can only mean one thing. It can only mean that there is a God out there who can violate the norms of human existence and human experience by doing the supernatural and by predicting the future. And this presents a problem for the humanist, the rationalist, the liberal. Because if indeed there is a God, then he or she cannot live just as they choose without fear of divine judgment one day. If a person, however, can succeed in eliminating the concept of God from his conscience, sear his conscience so much, put his ways and thoughts above God so much so that his conscience doesn't bother him anymore, then he doesn't have to submit to God's standards of righteousness, and he's free to, to live as he chooses. So you get it? For well over a hundred years, the book of Daniel has become the number one target of the Bible critics, these men of higher learning. And they believe it is scripture's Achilles heel. They think that if they can discredit the book of Daniel, then the whole structure of scripture just will come crashing to the ground, like um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image, you know, how it came crashing to the ground when the stone came out and hit it. Um, they think that if they attack Daniel, it's gonna, that's going to just demolish scripture. Scripture will turn to dust and it will be blown away by the winds of progressive liberalism. Well, is that going to happen? Is that going to happen? I mean, they're really working hard on it. But is it going to happen? Absolutely not. As I said earlier, God has exalted his word above his own name. His word is eternal. All these attackers one day are going to be turned to dust, but not the word of God. It will endure for how long? Forever. Forever. What is our answer to the skeptics? Well, it's pretty simple. You know what? To me, miracles simply mean that God is God. I wouldn't want a God who couldn't perform a miracle, would you? I just prove God's God. The fact that the Bible is a book full of miracles is not reason to deny it. It's reason to, it's actually proof that affirms the divine authorship of the book. The same is true with prophetic scripture. That's why I said the Bible is the only true holy book out there because 
It's full of prophecies concerning the future and has proven that the author is divine because so many of those have come to pass down to minute little details. You would expect God, if he's God, if he's omniscient, that you would expect that he would be able to know the future, to tell the end from the beginning. Miracles and prophecies are really the two greatest proofs that the Bible is God's word. These are the two key things that Jesus told the world when he was here. Why he is who he claimed to be, that he is the son of God. Father and I are one, that he's equal with God, that he too is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He said, in effect, believe me, number one, for the work's sake. My works prove who I am. You can know I'm God but by what I'm able to do. I mean, who else was running around raising the dead and uh, causing um, fish to jump into nets and calming a stormy sea and walking on the water and cleansing the leper and giving a man born blind his sight? Who else was able to do that kind of stuff? You know, multiplying just five loaves of bread and two fish or whatever it was, you know, and feeding 5,000 people. Believe me for the work's sake. And then he also said, he said, believe me for the words that I speak. He told his men in John 14, 29, he said, and no, I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. And isn't that exactly what happened with them? He told him ahead of time, son of man is going to be, you know, I am the Passover lamb. I am going to be crucified. And here's how it's going to happen. He went into details about everything that was going to happen. And when it came to pass, and he also said that he would rise on the third day. When all those things he had predicted actually came to pass, what happened? They believed. They believed. The two primary credentials to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be were his works, his miracles, and his words, his prophecies. And God says the same thing. So those are the points at which, of course, Satan will attack. Daniel is a book of both miracles and prophecies, so it is an attack book. If you're going to try to destroy the validity of the Bible, then one thing is clear, Daniel has to go. Daniel has to go. It was mentioned previously that Porphyry's attack against Daniel aroused an immediate defense by the early church fathers. Remember? And one of those was Jerome. So let me read you some of his words. Now remember, this was 16, no, let's see, 3rd century, 21st century. I can't do my math. A long time ago. <laughs> and he wrote these words in defense of um, the book of Daniel. He wrote this in his introduction to his commentary on Daniel. He says, quote, I wish to stress in my preface this fact that none of the prophets has so clearly spoken concerning Christ as has this prophet Daniel. For not only did he assert that he would come, a prediction common to the other prophets as well, in other words, that the Christ would come, but also Daniel set forth the very time at which he would come. And that is what we find in the 70 weeks prophecy. Moreover, he went through the various kings in order. He stated the actual number of years involved, and he announced beforehand the clearest signs of events to come. And because Porphyry saw that all these things had been fulfilled, and he could not deny that they had taken place, 
he, Porphyry, overcame this evidence of historical accuracy by taking refuge in this evasion, contending that whatever is foretold concerning Antichrist at the end of the world was actually fulfilled in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes because of certain similarities to things which took place at his time. But this very attack testifies to Daniel's accuracy. For so striking was the reliability of what the prophet foretold that he could not appear to unbelievers as a predictor of the future, but rather a narrator of things already past, end of quote. If you didn't understand that, it means that Daniel's prophecies of future events was so precise and so undeniable that Porphyry and others like him had no choice but to say that it was written by a forger who just looked back on history and wrote, wrote what already happened. That was a good comeback, and he wrote a whole book supporting Daniel. You know, Ezekiel, now this should have really end, it, this should end it for the higher critics. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. Their, their time on earth overlapped. And Ezekiel wrote about Daniel three times in the book of Ezekiel. Three times. I give you the passages in your notes. And he referred to Daniel as a righteous man on a par with Noah and Job. He also said that there was really none wiser than Daniel. Now, think of this. Ezekiel would not know Daniel if he was a forger who did not even live until 400 years later. You know, after Ezekiel's gone from the earth. How could Ezekiel refer to Daniel as righteous and wise if he didn't exist yet? Now, one would think, you would think, wouldn't you? You would think that this evidence, just this evidence alone from Ezekiel, who was a priest, a Jewish priest and a prophet of God, you would think that this evidence would force the critics to admit that Daniel was an historical 6th century figure who did live at the same time as Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was in the Babylonian captivity. He was taken over. And he actually lived and, and um, um, prophesied to his people while they're captive. So you'd think that would force the critics, right, to admit that Daniel was really Daniel and he wrote, no, it doesn't. It doesn't force them at all. They come up with their little theories and their little excuses. And the one, this is going to just blow you away, but the one that they are most dogmatic about is that Ezekiel's Daniel was actually a mythological Phoenician character. In other words, he wasn't even a true person. <laughs> it was a mythological Phoenician character who was a devoted worshiper of Baal. I think they could come up with something a little better than that, don't you? That, to me, is absolutely crazy. It'd be like, okay, Ezekiel is saying, um, you know, Daniel is as righteous as Noah and Job, and he's very, very wise. It'd be like if your pastor got up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and said, now, I want all of you to be followers of Peter and Paul and Robin Hood. I mean, that really is how crazy it is that he's putting this mythological Baal worshiper on a par with Job and Noah. Crazy. It's just the craziest excuse I, I cannot imagine having to be that desperate to come up with that kind of excuse. Um, also, you would have to answer, um, or they should be forced to answer, why a devout Jew 
as Ezekiel, priest and prophet of God, which means he's a spokesman for God. Um, why would he exalt anyone who worshiped Baal? Baal, false god Baal. Why in the world? It's really, here's the irony of the situation. Idolatry was the great sin of Israel, right? Isn't that why they're captive in Babylon anyway for 70 years? It's because of their idolatry turning to false gods. And who was the man God chose to be his prophet, to speak to the people amongst them, not in the White House, <laughs> but amongst them against the sin of idolatry while they're captive in, in, in Babylon? Ezekiel. Oh, Ezekiel. He, he chose Ezekiel. He was a priest. He chose him to be also his prophet to the people while they're in Babylon to speak against, don't take on all their gods and goddesses, you know, keep away from them. And yet Ezekiel chose a Baal worshiper to be on a par with, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, false doctrines, false theories never make sense. Have you noticed that? They're not, actually talk about rational, they're not rational because they're lies. The liberals' excuse to rid themselves of the true Daniel as the author of the book is absurd. And it leads one to also, therefore, needing to really dismiss Ezekiel. See, if you dismiss Daniel, then you have to dismiss Ezekiel as a reliable prophet of God. But they not only have to denigrate Ezekiel, they have to then dismiss the words of Gabriel, the angel, because he would have told a forger and a uh, Baal worshiper, a mythological figure, that he was a man greatly beloved of God. But see, they probably would already dismiss Gabriel anyway, right? Because he's an angel. Um, and then they would have to disparage the writings of Josephus. And even though he wasn't God-inspired, he said that Daniel was one of the greatest of the prophets. Furthermore, then they'll also, these critics of higher learning, will find themselves coming up against the Apostle Paul, which they do anyway. They just always love to attack Paul and say, well, that's just his opinion. You know, he wasn't inspired by God either. But they have to come up against Paul because Paul believed in the authentic Daniel and wrote about him, referred to his writings in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, 1 Timothy 4, 17. And then if the author of the book of Hebrews was not the Apostle Paul, but some other man, we're not sure who it was, you have to get rid of him, author of Hebrews, because he also believed in the authenticity of Daniel and even put Daniel in his Hall of Faith chapter, didn't he? Chapter 11, verse 33. Then the Apostle John, ah, got to get rid of him too. John, because he certainly referenced the book of Daniel and thought of Daniel as authentic and divinely inspired because the book of Revelation is full of references to Daniel. So you following me? Get rid of Daniel, you have to get rid of almost all the New Testament right there. But most important of all, the Lord Jesus Christ in his Olivet Dis Discourse referred to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel what? What are the next two words? The prophet. Daniel, not the forger, not the Baal-worshipping mythological Phoenician character, but Daniel, the prophet. And that settles it right there for me. Matthew 24, 15. He, and also Mark 13, 14. He, got, uh, Christ, obviously did not, not only regarded Daniel as historical, 
not mythological, but as a genuine prophet of God, not a fraud. Furthermore, according to the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of the sign that he was talking about, which was the abomination of desolation, when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. See, now remember, Jesus is living 200 years after Porphyry said the book of Daniel was written. And he said that everything was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes when he abominated the temple. So if Jesus, 200 years later, is speaking about a further abomination, when ye shall see, that means that it was indeed yet future. The 70 weeks prophecy talks about the abomination. So it's yet future. It was not all fulfilled in history past. So are you following me? You cannot dismiss Daniel without also dismissing Christ, the deity of Christ. There are only two choices that the higher critics who deny that a real 6th century Daniel wrote the book of Daniel can make with regard to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, the Olivet Discourse. Only two choices. Number one, they have to say that Jesus was speaking in ignorance. Number two, or he purposely was deceiving his men. By calling Daniel a prophet and by speaking of Daniel's refer reference to the abomination of desolation as yet future, when he knew, he was deceiving his men because he knew all along that da Daniel did not actually write the book and that the abomination sign was already fulfilled during the Maccabean revolt and with Antiochus Epiphanes. However, what they would say is that even though Jesus knew better, he went along with the popular tradition of his day because the Jewish people back then did believe in Daniel, that he really was, you know, the true author of the book of Daniel. And so he just went along with the tradition of his time. But wouldn't that be very ironic and out of character for Jesus? Because what did he speak out against more than anything else? <laughs> the tradition of the Jews. You know, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you over and over again, no, you guys got this wrong. This tradition is wrong. This is... So if Daniel wasn't the real author, wouldn't he have set them straight on that instead of going along just for, you know, to keep the peace? So let's analyze these two options concerning Jesus. First of all, if he spoke in ignorance, thinking that Daniel was genuinely a prophet of God and that what he wrote about had not yet come to pass, even five centuries later, then Jesus did not qualify to be God's son. If he was speaking in ignorance, he cannot be all-knowing, right? That disqualifies him as God. If he was deceived by the ignorance of others, then how do we know that he was not also ignorant because he was deceived by others, you know, with regard to even greater issues, such as our salvation? If he was so easily deceived and so ignorant about something like this, how can we trust him in other areas, such as when he says, except that a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven? How can we trust him? Secondly, if he did know that Daniel was a fraud, and he led his own disciples to think that there would one day be a further abomination of desolation in the holy place and that all the end times events surrounding it were yet future. You know, the, the seven years of tribulation and, and uh, the Antichrist and all that. When they weren't, if he led his people to think all these things were yet future, but they weren't, then he was guilty of deception. And if he was guilty of deception, then he's a sinner, right? 
He's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, then his shed blood and his death meant absolutely nothing. It didn't save you. It didn't save me. It didn't even save the liberal. <laughs> Nobody is saved. If you think the matter through, and that, this is what to me is so strange. These are supposed men of higher learning. And yet they can't think logically this whole process through. If you think it through, there is great ignorance in claiming that the book of Daniel is a forgery. Why would someone forge something as the writings of Daniel when the only thing ever written by Daniel is the book of Daniel? Okay, here's a little example. Let's say 400 years from now, somebody comes along and pretends to be Catherine Caldwell and writes a bunch of books and, and says that they're authored by Catherine Caldwell, but I never existed. And people would say, well, why would she be pretending, be pretending to be Catherine Caldwell when there was no Catherine Caldwell? You, you get it? I mean, it's not logical. Why would someone claim to be Daniel when there never was Daniel to claim to be? <laughs> Who would pawn himself off to be Daniel of the Babylonian captivity, Daniel of the lion's den, if there was no Daniel of the Babylonian captivity and of the lion's den? It would make no more sense than claiming to be a Christian, as so many of these um, liberal theologians do. They claim to be Christian, and yet they deny Jesus and what he had to say about Daniel. They deny the deity of Jesus, right? When they say, well, he didn't know what he's talking about because Daniel wasn't really Daniel. He was a forger. Um, that is exactly, however, what, they're, what so many liberal pastors, um, seminary professors across this nation are doing. So be alert to who you are listening to. Really, really be on the alert and tell your young people to be on the alert, especially if you send them off to a secular school of higher learning. They've got to be on their toes. They need to know how to defend their faith. And uh, you can be, let me tell you something, you can be confident in the Bible that it is the word of God. You can be totally confident in it. And as we go through our study of Daniel, time and time again, this is why I laid the foundation this morning, I'm going to show you where the critics say, ah, this can't be, and yet I'm going to show you how we can defend against what they're saying with regard to the book of Daniel. I'm going to actually say one in a few more minutes. But the bottom line is this, those who believe in the divine inspiration of the word of God. Do you? I do. I absolutely do. And it has proven to me over and over again, every jot and tittle is divinely inspired. There's not a, a or a the in there that is by accident. It's all just makes so much sense. It's perfect from cover to cover. It's one continuous story. But for those who believe in divine inspiration, those who believe in the sovereignty of God and the deity of Jesus Christ, we agree that a sixth century Daniel was the human author of the book that does carry his name and who, who he himself says he is. You know, they'll, they'll go, they, they discredit everybody. They say Isaiah wasn't the real writer of Isaiah. And did you know that Moses didn't really write the books of the Pentateuch? It was written by J, E, P, and D. Have you heard of those guys? I haven't. I don't know who J, E, P, and D is, but it wasn't Moses. You know, even though Moses says he wrote the books of Moses. Anyhow, <laughs> there is a serious lack of evidence to prove anything else. They are the ones who lack the evidence. Also, those who question Daniel's authenticity are forced to question many other things, as we just saw. And they also, if you read their various accounts, they come up with varying theories. 
as to why they discredit Daniel. In other words, they're not consistent. One will say it, he was this, this uh, uh, mythological character, and others will say this and that, and they come up with all different theories, and they're not absolutely consistent in it. And if you think they were right, that they, they would be consistent. But history and archaeology have shown us that they are wrong over and over again. You never have to fear history or archaeology or science. You do not have to fear science and what they'll discover. All right? It always proves the reliability of the word of God. All those little links, missing links that they think they've found over the years, oh, they turn out to be the jaw of a pig or some just crazy things. And then you never hear about what they really find out years later. All right, let's look at the setting of the book real clear, uh, quickly. Um, and for this, I'm not going to have time to get into the historical setting. As I said, we're going to do that, Lord willing, next week. But let's look at the biblical setting of the book. Did you know that the book of Daniel is written in two different languages? It's written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. Chapter 1 is Hebrew. Chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. And chapters 8 to 12 return to Hebrew. Aramaic is also called Chaldean. It was the predominant language, like English today, it was the predominant language spoken by the heterogeneous populations of the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires in the 5th and 6th century. They spoke Aramaic Chaldean. It's interesting that the chapters that are written in Aramaic, which are chapters 2 to 7, present the times of the Gentiles and deal primarily with matters that would have concerned all the people of those empires, Gentile people, written in Aramaic, the Chaldean language. Um, however, the contents of the chapters that are written in Hebrew, which are chapters 8 to 12, deal more directly with matters that concern Israel and the Hebrew people, such as her future Gentile oppressors and her coming Messiah and God's plan for her ultimate redemption, etc. That's just interesting to, to note. Um, now, critics of Daniel will, here's one example I'm going to give to you. Critics point out that Daniel used in his writing a few Greek words and a few Persian words, and they say right there that that eliminates him from being a 6th century author, that he had to have been in the 2nd century B.C. because Greek wasn't a known language at the time and Persian wasn't spoken back in the 6th century B.C. And he, he does use some words. He talks about some of the instruments that they're playing before everybody bows down to the big statue and their Persian words. And, but archaeology has shown them again to be wrong because um, they have discovered that there were Greek mercenaries, those are hired soldiers, who served in both the Assyrian armies and the Babylonian army of King Nebuchadnezzar. So those are Greek-speaking soldiers in those two armies. So there were Greek words known in the world back in the 6th century. There were Greek people, and they were out and about, so it wouldn't be weird. Plus, you know, when Daniel is trained in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, he learns all kinds of languages. So it wouldn't be strange for him to know a few Greek words, and it surely wouldn't be strange for him to know a few Persian words because he was the prime minister prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire for about six years. And he didn't write the book of Daniel until he retired in his old age. So of course he picked up on a lot of Persian words. You see how ridiculous that argument is? That one just went down the drain, didn't it? 
All right. The book of Daniel is the last of the four major prophets. Who are the major prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Okay, and Daniel is the shortest of the four, only being 12 chapters. And Daniel is followed by what we call the minor prophets. Immediately follows Daniel, I think it's Hosea, right? Hosea, and then all the way to Malachi. Those are the minor prophets. Now, why do we call them major and minor? Is that got to do with the quality of the man? No, not at all. It's just the length of the book. Now, it does look like, if you look at Zechariah, it looks like Zechariah is longer than the book of Daniel, but chapters are man-made. Yes, Zechariah has more chapters, but actually, if you count the words, it has less words than the book of Daniel. Now, the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, the way the Jewish people put their Old Testament together is different. I mean, they still have 39 books like we do, but they divide the 39 books of the Old Testament into three divisions. First of all, the law, which is the Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law. Second, they have the prophets. And they divide the prophets between the former prophets and the latter prophets. Now, their former prophets, they say, were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter prophets, they um, say there are three major in the latter prophets. Three major. How many do we have? Four. But they say there's only three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then they say, as we do, 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All right, so we still haven't heard about Daniel, have we? In the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament scripture. Law, prophets, he's not in the prophets. He's not considered a major or a minor prophet to them, a latter or a former. Third grouping in their books of the Old Testament is the sacred writings. And they take the sacred writings and they divide them into three categories. The poetic books, which are uh, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Then what they call the rolls or the scrolls, Ruth, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. And then finally, the third category of the sacred books is the historical books. And they are Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and who? Daniel. Dan that's where they put Daniel. The Jews put Daniel not with the prophets. They put him under the sacred writings with the historical books. They don't list him among the prophets because the rabbis say that he is referred to as a wise man. Hakam, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but a wise man. And he was a wise man. Um, they say that he was not a prophet in the normal sense, in that God did not, not deliver messages through Daniel publicly and directly to his people. Daniel spent motive, most of his time in the palace. Uh, and he didn't write the book of Daniel until in his old age. He didn't go out among the people and proclaim God's words to the people. Ezekiel did. Ezekiel was among the people, but Daniel was up there in the White House. <laughs> um, and they say, the Jewish rabbis say, that he was a statesman, which he was, more than an official prophet. And they say that Daniel never claimed to be a prophet, nor does the Old Testament, do any of the Old Testament writers ever say that Daniel was a prophet? Ezekiel says he was a righteous man and a wise man, but n never does it say that Daniel was a prophet. 
An important point to make regarding, however, the different placement of Daniel in the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament compared to the Christian canon of the Old Testament is that the Jewish people, nonetheless, and their rabbis, their leaders, consider Daniel an inspired work of God. They do consider Daniel God-inspired. Make sure you understand that. Just because they didn't put him with the prophets <laughs> doesn't mean they don't believe he's a God-inspired book. And they never, there's never any indication from any Jewish, ancient Jewish literature that Daniel was ever considered to be a forgery. If nothing else, time has proven the prophetic nature of Daniel's writings. But there is a very critical reason that the Christian catalog of Old Testament books lists Daniel with the major prophets, whereas the Jewish books don't list him with the prophets. What is that major difference? What made the major difference? I should say, who made the major difference? Jesus did. The reason that we put Daniel with the prophets is because of the Lord Jesus. The Son of God himself, as we've already mentioned, put his divine seal of approval on the fact that Daniel was indeed a spokesman for God, that he was a prophet, back there in Matthew 24, 15. Now, obviously, the words of Jesus did not cause the Jews to move Daniel from the historical books over to the major prophets, right? Because they, they denied Jesus. They don't believe he was a spokesman for God. And so they still have him in the sacred writings and the historical books, okay? I think one day they're going to move him, but for now he's still <laughs> where he is. <clears throat> and I think a main reason for keeping him out of the prophet category too is because Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy so clearly gave the Jewish people the information necessary to calculate the precise time of their Messiah's coming. And um, so they don't want to, they don't want to pay a lot of, you know, put a lot of attention in the fact that Daniel was a prophet. <laughs> because if people study him as a prophet, they'll see that there's no other Messiah who qualifies other than Jesus of Nazareth. All right, um, we're out of time. Everything else you can read in the notes. I only was going to tell you how he fits in with the other major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but that's in there. That's easy for you to read. And so let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the attention of your people. I know these are not easy lessons. It's almost like we're back in college, but thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the many prophecies of your word and the many miracles that we do read about in your word because they do assure us that you indeed are an all-knowing, all-powerful, powerful, all-wise God who is in the process of working all things together after the counsel of your own will. We thank you that we do serve a God whose thoughts and ways are so much higher than ours because we are finite and our reasoning powers are greatly reduced because of our sin nature. But with salvation, with the indwelling, enlightening work of your Holy Spirit within us, we are enabled to reason righteously. And we are able to see, see clearly that your word is truth. It is utterly reliable from Genesis to Daniel and all the way through to the book of Revelation. Not one jot, not one tittle shall pass away till all be fulfilled. And we thank you so much for that foundation for our life and for all of eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.